focusing on some of the stuff the Spirit has done in the Old Testament. But before we begin the study, uh, let us do so properly with prayer. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to continue to study you, and in particular, the being and the, the works of great Holy Spirit. We pray that this would be a time that is fruitful for our minds and our affections and our wills. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I want to review some of the things that we addressed, uh, that Connor addressed last week. First question is, is the Holy Spirit God? So, some of these questions are like really easy. Okay? <laughs> some of them are going to be a little bit harder. I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you here. Is the Holy Spirit God? Okay. So, it, it'd be right to say like the Holy Spirit rather than give me, give me your Holy Spirit as like a force. Though the scripture does talk about the Spirit in both ways. Okay. So, since the Holy Spirit is God, can we... Uh, we would do. We would see that there are uh, passages of Scripture that identify the Spirit as God. What are some passages of Scripture that come to mind that you might use as you're interacting with somebody who might deny the deity of <coughs> the Spirit? You're on the street, stranger comes, says, you need to tell me where the Holy Spirit is God in Scripture. <clears throat> and you got one shot. What do you say? Say so John 14, 16, 17. John 14, 16, 17? All right. So the Holy Spirit is God, John 14, 16, 17. You want to summarize that? Speaking of the disciples, the upper room discourse, because I will give you another upper, even the spirit of truth, and you know him, and you will he will be in you. Okay. Good. Was that one of the passages you used last week? Uh, I can't recall. Okay. My head, but I will use it next week. Okay. Great Commission. Okay. So we're talking Matthew 28. What What is, where in the Great Commission do we see the Holy Spirit as God? Uh, Jesus tells the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. So if you're going to be baptized into this name, part of which is the Holy Spirit, certainly that's significant. You're, bat you're being baptized into the name of God. You're being, the Holy Spirit is joined here with the Father and the Son. Okay. Good. Can we think of anything else? Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Okay. <clears throat> so we have something in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, 
and then towards the end, and what in the baptism of Jesus speaks to the deity of the Spirit? Well, the, the, I was looking at Luke, but the, the terms that the Gospel writers use, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. Yeah. So, uh, next question, and it also answers the first question. Is the Spirit an impersonal force or a personal being? Since you believe the Spirit is God, since Scripture says the Spirit is God, clearly the Spirit is not an impersonal force. Though he has a force to be reckoned with. Okay. Where could we go in Scripture to substantiate this point that the Spirit is not an impersonal force, but is a real person? Perhaps in addition to the text just mentioned. Okay. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6. And how does that communicate that the Spirit is not a force, but a person? Because He's with, he is with us. He is present with us. Good. <clears throat> you really wouldn't say, well, this chair is present with me. Though it is near me. Can we really say it's present with me? I mean, you know, there's some kind of relationship between me and chair. Yes, but an impersonal one. So Acts is the go-to text, for me anyways, when I'm interacting, for instance, with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they, they say that the Spirit is an impersonal force. They say the Spirit is a force, just like electricity. So, uh, in Acts 5, for instance, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... And I asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So in Acts 5, 1 through 4, we have both the personality of the Spirit and the deity of the Spirit. It's, it'd be odd to say, you know, don't lie to that, to that light bulb. How dare you? Okay, you're actually going to die because you lied to the light bulb, that you know, conduit of electricity. Okay. You've not lied to man, but to God. Okay. This next question is a little harder. Uh, what is the Holy Spirit's personal property? Which is another way of saying, how is the Spirit uh, distinguished 
from the Father and the Son. Since we do believe that there is one God and three persons, what distinguishes the Spirit from the other two? Okay. I yes. Well, I was quoting my favorite, one of my favorite passages from um, Packer. Mm-hmm. God, the Father, decrees or ordains our salvation. Jesus procured it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And he, he's now the one with us, teaching us to interpret His Word. Causing us to, allowing us, permitting us to walk in obedience, and protecting us from gross sin. Sure. Agreed. His mission, that that mission of his, has some eternal uh, grounding. So, this eternal grounding would be true whether or not there was a creation what is that personal property that, even if there were no creation, uh, is, is eternally true? You're saying like the Son is eternally divided. Yes. So what is the Spirit? Yes. That's, yes, that's what I'm asking. I know, the question a little bit harder. It stumped me when I was going up for licensure in the OPC. Like, what are the personal properties of God? What is this, a philosophy class? I should have known it, but I didn't. And learned it. <clears throat> and I haven't forgotten it. Chuck Williams said that I think that Edwards said, called the Spirit the, the, the outpouring of the love between the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that loving communion between Father and Son is personified in Spirit. That's not a question. <laughs> no. Not exactly. Is this what causes split the church between the east and the west? Is this what? Uh, because they're without. Yes. Saying. Yes. So, 1054, east west schism, was the Filioque clause that Connor had spoken of last time, and from the sun. So, we go to our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter uh, 2. Point three, and the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Okay? One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The next line is the uh, personal property of each. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we call that uh, procession or spiration. Spiration uh, or spirated. Okay, The Spirit is spirated from Father and Son. Spiration Think of inspiration and aspiration. That spire refers to breath, breathing. So the Spirit has eternally...
proceeded from Father and Son. It's not that the Father proceeded from the Spirit. It's not that the Son um, proceeded from the Spirit. It's not that the, Son, that the Father and the Son came from the Spirit. It's the Spirit eternally proceeded from Father and Son. Was eternally, has eternally been spirated. Now, so we're talking something about, in, in all eternity, okay, and this is, this is mind-boggling, to be sure. After all, this is not a chronological procession. Because the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have eternally been. There was never a time when the Spirit was not. So, how could it be that um, one who is eternal proceeds from others who are eternal? I don't know. And that's okay. But that's the personal property of the Spirit. He comes from, eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that eternal procession is the, like I said, the, the grounding of his mission. Because the Father sends the Son into the world to live, die, rise for identification, and the Spirit takes that redemptive work of Christ and applies it. But he is coming from Father, from Son. He's coming from Father and Son, to make application of that eternal work that was conceived and then carried out in time. I don't know about you, but I just got chills from that. This is just mind-boggling. Again, it's crazy uh, just to think of how... of our God. Okay. Another uh, word that we were introduced to was indoxation. Remember that word? Okay, it can be with I-N or E-N. Some books will have one, others will have the other. Though not many books have the term. So, uh, what's indoxation? And Connor does not get to answer this question because he gave it to you last week. Doxa. What's doxa? We get the word doxology from, from this. Praise. Okay, yes. Not my first time. Okay. Praise. Big, big G word. We love this word. Glory. Glory, yes. Okay. That does say glory. Okay. So doxa, praise, glory. Something about the glory of God. In doxation. So in, there is an indwelling. Yes, there's an indwelling of glory. You know where the indwelling of glory is when we speak of indoxation or the indoxate spirit. So, doxa means glory or praise, and then that's what, that's what we get into. Oh, yeah. oh, okay, we're not there. Okay, that's what we're doing already. Right. 
Rats? No. Rats. Uh, eventually, yes, but not uh, from the not from the first act of creation. Oh, I'm sorry. But it is quite uh, mind-boggling as well to think of the indoxic spirit indwelling us. Okay, so the uh, so indoxation is that inseparable link between the spirit and the created invisible heavens. So here's a quote from a man named Lane Tipton who was uh, referencing a man named Meredith G. Klein. The spirit is indoxated in the heavenly temple to be worshipped as he who bears in his personal presence the fullness of the glory of God. I'll give it to you again. The spirit is indoxated in the heavenly temple to be worshipped as he who bears in his personal presence the fullness of the glory of God. So no sooner does God create than the Spirit indwells, inhabits, in the absolute beginning, the heavenly, invisible temple. That's called indoxation. It is that, it is to that that the Son will ascend when he comes to glory. It is to, it is, uh, to God in that heavenly place that we pray when we come before the throne of grace. We come to that place through prayer in the Spirit. The Spirit who perfectly indwells this heavenly temple. So the analogy is the incarnation. So God, Christ the Son, became incarnate in the flesh. When God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and created heaven. What we're essentially saying is that heaven is the realm of the Spirit. There was heaven was heaven was not eternal. Heaven was created. Yeah. Only God is eternal. And in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. He created heaven. And heaven is the realm of the Holy Spirit. Where was the Holy Spirit before who was eternal before heaven was created? Living in perfect union with the Father and the Son. Mutually loving one another for all time. Of which there was none. Yes. <laughs> so that's review. Okay. So we go to Genesis 1. And we'll look at this first couple verses. And, and Harry already quoted the first part there for us. Uh, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So again, heavens are created. The earth was without form and void, and darkness over darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in this lesson, this is the Spirit in the Old Testament. We see that the Spirit creates, the Spirit sustains, the Spirit governs, the Spirit recreates. There's a lot there, and I had to be very selective with passages of Scripture 
passages regarding the Spirit's work in the Old Testament abound. He is very active in the Old Testament. Now you're going to want to, you're going to uh, ask the question, at least you'll be tended to ask the question, well, how does the Spirit's work differ from Old to New Testament? You can ask it, but it's not going to be answered today. All right? Keep it, because Connor and I will continue the series in the New Testament in the coming weeks. Okay. We're looking at the Incarnation uh, next Sunday. The following week is the Exaltation. Then I'm doing a uh, study on Pentecost. And then get the gift of the tongues. Tongues, and then he'll uh, address Spirit's role in the Christian life. So it'll be hard. But let's focus on the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. And you'll have, partially anyways, an answer to the question that you are so tempted to ask. So he creates all, all non-mankind. Okay? All that is not human. He creates that. That's not for me to say that he doesn't also create mankind. It's just, hold on. He creates all that is non-mankind. Ruach. We saw this word last uh, last week it means living, uh, means breath or spirit, and it refers to the living, energetic blast of God. I believe that's how Ferguson speaks of this word in his book on the spirit, the energetic blast of God or breath of God. So in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So as Ruach, as uppercase S spirit, he creates all that exists. All that is. Okay? Spirit, and, uh, Psalm 33-6 says, the spirit created the heavens, the earth, and all their host. All that is created is the product of the Spirit. Job 26.13 in the King James says, By his Spirit, uppercase S, he hath garnished the heavens, his hand hath formed the crooked serpent. The crooked serpent is a reference to the Milky Way galaxy. Not that slithering snake of Genesis 3. Though, it is true that even that one day, that snake, is the product of creation. Because Satan is not eternal, right? And this spirit hovers, moves, as we see here, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so the imagery here is of a dove-like bird sitting on her, her egg, her, her young, to provide it the much-needed life and warmth. And it's a joy to see these hens we have sitting on their eggs, just continuing to, to do the work of, of life and warmth um, until we take them. For our life. Yes. Okay. And so one of the chickens we have, the two of them, Hermione and Penguin, and they're, what, what, what type are they again? The black kind? Whatever. Black copper lambs. Okay. That. So they, it takes them a little longer to lay eggs. 
uh, and we watched a video of this type um, you know, just laying her first egg. Because we want to know what color it is. We want to know what color it is. Yeah. So you see, this, this is a video. YouTube is awesome sometimes. And just check it out. You see this egg. This bird just starts just praising, just starts singing. This, what was that? It's called an egg song. An egg song. After they lay their just breaks out and, and singing. And of course, there are no words for that. But we know she's doing something. She's excited. She's celebrating the, the, you know, the light that she just dropped this egg. And she wanted to provide it you know, warmth and light and, and sustain it. And, and she is singing. And I, and I also think of Zephaniah 3. It speaks of the Lord who is singing loudly over us. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, sings over us eternally. From before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Spirit sing over one day what would be the, the creation. And so the Spirit is now hovering over this deep darkness, his waters of, of chaos, and he is going to make it pregnant with life. He's going to fill the darkness with life. Fill the, the nothingness with life. He creates. John Owen says, Without him, all was a dead sea, a confused heap covered with darkness. But by the moving of the Spirit of God upon it, he communicated a quickening, prolific virtue. So, quickening is just another way of saying enlivening. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess the living and the dead, right? But we say the quick, or some, some say the quick and the dead. And that's not because we're confessing those who are fast and then those who are, who are dead, and so they're not fast at all. The quick is those who are alive. Okay. So Owen is saying that he gives life to nothingness. Remember, Creation is creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. So there wasn't some pre-existing material that the spirit has to work with, as in many other creation narratives. There's nothing. So there's this creation of the heavens and earth, but now the heavens and the earth, uh, the earth here needs to be, the heavens and the earth need to be formed. Okay? Who does that? Is the Spirit. With a communication of quickening, prolific, fruitfulness, you know, virtue is this excellent work of life giving. The Spirit brings to fruition creation as planned by God the Father. So He creates all that exists, and now we see He also creates mankind. Not only does He create non human life, but mankind and mankind. Especially. So in Genesis 2 7, we see Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man would not be alive were it not for the breathing of life into him. 
So mankind's existence, mankind's vitality, his own creation is entirely dependent on the life-giving creative work of the Spirit. Breathes this life into him. Job 33, 4 says, Elihu says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 104, 30, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So, mankind, from the beginning of his creation, had the spirit. If he didn't have the spirit, he wouldn't be alive. You know what they say, if, if you can read, thank the teacher. If you can breathe, thank the Spirit. That was good, okay? But not only that, not just thank the Spirit for creating you, enjoy then creation. And there's much of creation to enjoy, isn't there? You see life everywhere, especially in springtime. You see life budding up and blossoming and... Another opportunity. What was that? I chicken's laying eggs. Chicken laying eggs, yeah. These are, if we just look around, we see so many beautiful testimonies of the life of God, the Spirit. So many opportunities then to give God thanks. And you don't have to simply say, God, thank you for creating me. You could even narrow that and say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for creating me. But you would be, you'd also be fine to say, Father and Son. So, the Spirit of creation. Now, in the next section we have the Spirit uh, from the fall until now. The Spirit performs many works, of, uh, works for his creatures. So he sustains. The Spirit maintains the life of creation until he wills that life's expiration. If he is the author of life, then only he can take life away. Psalm 104.29, so I already read Psalm 104.30, verse 29 says, When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, their spirit, their ruach, they die and return to their dust. John Calvin, in his Institute, says, It is a spirit who, everywhere diffused, sustains all things, causes them to grow, and quickens them in heaven and in earth. So remember, it isn't just the stuff of earth that the spirit creates and sustains, but it is even the heavenly host. It is all that exists in the heavens. He sustains all things. And we talk about the Spirit sustaining all things as well. Because he, the Son, because he does. By the word of his power. He sustains all. He restrains as well. To restrain, to keep back. To prevent something from happening. And what, given the fall, would need to be restrained? Sin. Okay. 
So the Spirit does not allow sinful man to be as sinful as he can be. One possible text for this is Genesis 6.3. My spirit will not always strive with man. Just about the, uh, speaking of the flood narrative. God promises to remove life and to make an end to man's horrifying conduct. So what we have here is the doctrine of common grace. You guys know this doctrine? Okay. Oftentimes people will say that common grace means, and they're right right to say this, that uh, God gives, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Okay? So uh, you don't have to be elect in order to receive good things from God. In fact, as Paul says, the, the good gifts of God are intended for our repentance. But another area of common grace, seen in Romans 1, is God holding back and restraining, re- restraining sinfulness so that there can actually be life on earth, given fallen man. So William Ames, the Puritan, says, God inhibits, well, this isn't, it doesn't say this just yet, I've kind of summarized part of it, God inhibits the progress of spiritual death so that, quote, excess of sin is curbed in most people, so that even sinners abhor the committing of many grosser sins. So there's a sense, maybe a, a, simply a civil sense, of the um, reprobate uh, that they don't want to commit certain things. They, they think it's you know, unthinkable to engage in certain um, you know, sinfulness, uh, sinful activities. Well, that's because of the Holy Spirit. It's not because they are partially bad and partially good, and they're really just uh, leaning on the good side of their heart. It's because the Spirit is not, it, the Spirit is holding them back from going all in on the evil. So the Spirit sustains, the Spirit restrains as well. He empowers, so the Spirit equips his image bearers to service. A few passages bear this out. At the end of Deuteronomy, we read that the Lord gives Joshua, this is Deuteronomy 34, 9, the Lord gives Joshua this, the spirit of wisdom to lead. You know how rebellious of people Moses tried to lead. And you know Moses had to be equipped to lead that rebellious people. And so he was. And when Moses passes away, he must pass the baton to someone else and someone in whom is the Spirit. Someone who would be full of the Spirit of wisdom to lead that rebellious people into the promised land. Joshua needed this Spirit wisdom. If he didn't have it, he couldn't have done the good leading that he did. And Joshua's a, a great guy. We love Joshua. We love the work that he did for the people. In Zechariah 4, verse 6, there is verse is something like, not by power, but by the Spirit, will the second temple be built. So, the temple, it's a work of God. Temple, having a temple is a very important work of people. If it's going to be completed the way it needs to be completed, 
It must be completed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit must uh, empower individuals to uh, have that temple built. The Spirit also was, was on uh, those in uh, when the temple was first built and the, the furniture pieces by Jehoiab um, um, and uh, so the B. I almost said Belial. That would have been awful. Jehoiab uh, and some Bezalel or something like that. Nobody knows the name. Jubal. What was that? Jubal. No. What was that? Okay, and and a holy app. Anyways, so these were men who were uh, given the spirit that they might create different uh, furnishings. Okay, they were they were very artistic, and that artistic uh, gift was from the spirit. Abraham Kuyper says, "Gifts and talents come from the Father, are disposed for each personality by the Son, and kindled in each." by the Holy Spirit, as by a spark from above. Mm-hmm. We say the Spirit is responsible for creating heavens and earth, or in the world. How do we reconcile that with Hebrews 1, verse 2? In these last days he spoke of this by his Son, and he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In one instance, we have the Spirit creating, and then in Hebrews tells us the Son creates. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Well, Genesis comes to mind where there's a, um, a verse, sorry, I can't be specific, but it says, Let us make meaning in our own image. And so there seems to be. Um, the whole God had it all. Right. Yeah. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, that's one verse. Thus it is written, the first man became a life being, a living being. The last man became life giving spirit. Yes. So the main point is that we're reading and studying about distinguishing between the three persons of God, and we also have to remember that God is one. Mm-hmm. And that's why, in one instance, we can talk about the Spirit creating, and then the Hebrews talks about the Son creating. And also John, in the book of Gospel John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Very good. And that's a reference to which person divided? Well, Lee, Jesus the Son. Yes, yes, exactly. The Word. Yes, that's right. So, a really helpful quote that I think, um, because we're just going up against the mystery of who God is, we can only go so far. But a great, great Nancy Ansis had this quote, and I think it's very, very good for all of us to keep in mind. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one that I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. Yes. And, and uh, Hebrews 12, we're going to be reading this morning, uh, speaks of the Father as the Father of the Spirits. 
So we, the Father creates, the Son creates, the Spirit creates. All acts of God are done by the Godhead. It's not like one person sits something out. They're all involved. And of course, that looks different uh, when it comes to, say, like the crucifixion. It, we, we would be wrong to say the Father was on the cross, or the Spirit was on the cross. But that's not to say that the Father was absent, or the Spirit was absent in the whole complex of the crucifixion. It was eternally decreed by God that there would be the crucifixion. Father, Son, and Spirit. We would probably say that the Father was not but he did not die. But the God-man is inseparable. The human deity of Christ is inseparable. Yes. What I mean is the Father is not hanging on the cross. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if you're going to say that or not. I'm going to think about that. The God-man was hanging on the cross. I mean, Christ in his full deity was on the cross. But God and his deity did not die. The human nature of Christ died on the cross. Right. right. Not the human nature, the human body. The human body, yes. Yeah, the, the person who is a single person with two natures died on the cross. Yes. <clears throat> Harry, I think you could think of it as God fully present in crucifixion in his painful role of cutting off the sun and mourning which mourning for him in the agony he was he was experiencing. And the spirit well, I guess the spirit was there Especially since we affirm the omnipresence of God. He is not especially absent anywhere. Can't be. Can't be. What we just don't want to do is separate the two natures of Christ. What was that? What we just don't want to do is separate the two natures of Christ. Correct. So um, Isaiah 11 2, speaking of the Messiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what eyes, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, and on and on. So this, the Messiah, his ministry, now I'm kind of getting already you know, ahead here with coming weeks, but his Ministry is spirit-empowered. He is governed by the spirit. He's, in fact, driven into the wilderness by the spirit, that he might be tempted. Okay. Uh, so the, the spirit uh, empowers, the spirit governs, the spirit rules the lives and actions of his image bearers. Judges 3.10 says the spirit of God 
came upon Othniel to judge Israel? If the judges in the Old Testament were going to judge wisely, they needed the Spirit. And so the Spirit was given. The Spirit recreates as well. So the Spirit gives new spiritual life to whomever he wills. And we saw this last week as an indication of the deity of the Spirit, talking about the, um, not just the, act, the attributes, but the actions of the Spirit that point to the deity. He gives to whomever he will. Okay. You, you cannot contain the Spirit. That's what Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about in John 3. The Spirit blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. Same thing with the Spirit. He blows where he will. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he gives gifts to whomever he will. In Titus 3.5, text for, for next Sunday's sermon, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Literally, that is, by Genesis again. By a new Genesis. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, there is a recreation. There must be a recreation because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If we who are physically alive but spiritually dead will have spiritual life, it must come from God. It must come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you could say, again, the Father electing, the Son uh, living, dying, and rising, the Spirit applying, sealing, giving the, the individual new life. Recreates. Makes us a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And we see what the, um, this new spirit life looks like, this new creation looks like in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. So spirit wrought life in Ephesians 4.24 means renewal in true righteousness and holiness. Renewal in true righteousness and holiness. And in Colossians 3.10... Spirit-wrought life means renewal in knowledge. So, there is new life in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. What these texts imply, then, is that pre-fall Adam had the Spirit. He wasn't in a state of neutrality. He was in a position of, of communion with God in true knowledge, true righteousness, and true holiness which makes his offense all the more remarkable and grievous and mysterious. John Owen says, The Spirit of God, whose office, it is, whose office it is to preserve creation, produces a new supply of creatures in the form of those that fall off like leaves from the trees and return every day to the dust. By his influential concurrence, all things spring afresh, and the face of nature is renewed and adorned. Stop talking about uh, uh, giving new life each day to creation. And Beeky, in his, uh, in his systematic theology on the Spirit, says, When the Holy Spirit comes to renew lost sinners, he does not enter foreign territory, but returns to that which he created. So that life that he had given, 
that then denies him, he recreates for his own glory. He returns to territory that, again, the, the heart that had abandoned him. So when it comes to creation and sustaining and restraining, empowering, governing, recreating, the Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. People in the Old Testament were saved no differently from how they are today. They needed the Spirit of life. And you don't get, the, the language is, is a little bit different. But, uh, like in the Old Testament, circumcision of the heart is language of that renewal, that new life. Remember, by the way, you shouldn't just be circumcised in you know, the foreskin, on the external. That is, is supposed to look to, point to an inward reality, an inward change. That can only be wrought by God himself. We believe that people were saved in the Old Testament in a way no different from how they were saved in the New Testament. This you know, believing trust in the Lord and in the one that he would provide. It's just the Old Testament people are looking forward to the Messiah and we are looking back to the Messiah. And it is the same eternal spirit who... Uh, gives that new uh, life to Abraham, to Moses, to Noah, to, to all of us. I won't um, wax long about this next part because of time, but also because of the recent ABF series in Second Peter, but the spirit of prophecy. Peter tells us that all of the human authors of Scripture were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit who breathed creative life into the, into the human being breathes His words, His, his words of eternal life, and they are written by fallible human authors. But because it is a work of the Spirit, who superintends all, men are not prophesying uh, by their own will, but they are being led, being carried along by the Spirit, so that everything that is written here is exactly as the Spirit wanted. And these are not mere man's words. These are words of life. To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Of course, he's speaking, they're spe he's speaking to the Son, Again, the, the step of God is uh, Father, Son, Spirit, all working together. Spirit of prophecy. Moses had the spirit of prophecy. The Spirit came upon him to prophesy. And you might remember, the sons of Korah, they objected. And they, they said, how is it that you have the Spirit and, and we don't get Him? And then there was that test and they all, they all got swallowed up in a big pit. But 
Moses does say, would that all prophesy. So, so there will be, it, down the road, and this is what Joel 2 speaks of as well, there will be uh, a time when there is, you know, plenary prophecy, okay, like full, you know, sons and daughters shall prophesy. Acts 2 fulfills Joel 2, but I'm getting ahead of myself again. So all of this work is the work of the Spirit, this work of prophecy, of inspiring, breathing eternal life into these words that we might have eternal life. In Hebrews 3, 7, citing the Old Testament, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. We don't normally preface scripture quotations with as the Holy Spirit says, but he does regularly in Hebrews. We say, God says, and we're right to say that. Thus saith the Lord, yes. But we do have some passages that key in on the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit says. So we can thank God for His Spirit-inspired Word. God's people have always depended on the Spirit, who prophesies with both truth and power. And there's also the Spirit of Presence. Psalm... I'm just going to go to Psalm 139. Verses 7 through 12. You have the three texts of Scripture on your outline. You can look at the other two later on. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay. You can't escape the Spirit. And some want to escape the Spirit. Some want to escape God, like Jonah. Uh, Jonah wanted to do that. But he, of course, failed. Can't really escape the one who is omnipresent. This could be a comfort to those who trust in Christ, who trust in the Lord. I can't, I can't escape your Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this is uh, Michael Horton, says... The Holy Spirit is the one who turns a house into a home, a creative space into a covenantal space where God dwells with his people. Last night, our family had the privilege of going into a home that had been recently built, and we had seen the house when it wasn't finished, and we got to see what uh, the potential was that this room is going to have this closet in there. I can kind of see it. Okay. Uh, but a, a bunch of nails and boards, you know, dirt. Just months later, now we get to go into this, this house, the McCarriages' house, and uh, look at it, and be in it, and dwell in it. And what, what do we see? But life everywhere. Every room, you know, has the life of their children or of uh, man, Shantae. They, they made that house 
a home. They, they indwelt it. And they're with one another in it. The spirit takes dead bodies and spirits and indwells them with his beautiful, blessed presence. And we become the temple of the Lord. We are different now from how we were because we have the Spirit indwelling us. God has always been omnipresent, but His special presence of blessing was with God's people in the tabernacle, in the temple that He had graciously given them. And, um, and like, like it was already said, we become that temple. He who indoxated the heavenly invisible temple indwells, indoxates us so that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another and uh, rise and live in eternal communion, live in communion with God who is eternal forevermore. So we just have to end there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the time we had this morning. Just contemplating, even briefly, the, the wonderful works of, of you, our God. We acknowledge that even though we zeroed in on one particular person, we found ourselves unable to um, separate him from the others. Because, Lord, you, for your glory, you have done all things. Father, Son, and Spirit, you eternally love one another. And we thank you that you have decided to love us as well. And not just us New Testament Christians, but your saints in the Old Testament as well. We see that you have been gracious with your people from the beginning. We thank you. And we ask now that we would have a proper attitude and Godward focus in the next uh, about 15 minutes or so when we come and worship your holy name.